Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. So let me tell you a little story about grace, unmerited. First, you have to understand how I feel about trucks who have large loads in the back of their pickup trucks that are not tied down. I get so angry when I see people taking things places and it's not adequately tied down. And so with that as my number one sin on the freeway, you must know that about eight weeks ago, I went over to Monrovia, California and picked up a new toy, these foam uh, blocks. I was all excited about uh, playing those with the kids and I had a big brick of them in the back of my pickup. And I was sure they were heavy enough to stay there without tying them down. Well, I got to about Duarte, and in my rearview mirror, I see this big brick of my foam blocks fly out the window. And I prayed to the Lord, don't let somebody veer off and have an accident because of those foam bricks. And I couldn't believe that I had committed my own number one sin. I pulled off at the nearest exit. I did a full U-turn. It took me about 10 minutes. By the time I got there, a CHP had just finished doing that slow down maneuver where you're not supposed to pass him. He had all of LA stopped there on the eastbound 210 and he motioned to me, come get your block of whatever it is. I walked that long walk of shame across three or four lanes of 210 eastbound, I picked up my big block of bricks and walked back. I couldn't believe that they weren't honking and screaming and saluting me. Well, by the time I got into my car, I took off for the nearest exit to tie them down. I didn't see the CHP giving me any ticket. He didn't even have a dirty look for me. I just knew that I had been given amazing grace. No ticket no penalty. Well, I went and tied it down and I had a word of prayer and I said, Lord, this is what grace feels like from my perspective. I deserved a ticket and did not get one. Praise the Lord. A woman from Waterford, California named Renee Carlton was teaching in the children's division of her church. That weekend, her son was there seated next to another young girl named Lisa, and they were listening to Renee's presentation and her lesson. Renee was trying to help the children understand how God forgives us even when we feel guilty. And so she looked at Lisa and she said, Lisa, can you share with us some moment when you felt guilty and you needed God's forgiveness? Well, Lisa's eyes just got big being put on the spot in front of all of her friends she had nothing she wanted to say, but everybody was staring. Renee said, I heard the loud whisper of my son say to her, you don't have to answer that. And then she said, my son looked me in the eye and said, 
We don't have to tell you our problems. This isn't the Oprah Winfrey show. <laughs> well, this is not the Oprah Winfrey show. We're not expecting you to come in with all your guilt and start sharing with everybody around you. But I will say this. I suspect most of us brought guilt of some kind in this morning with us to worship. It may be because of the bricks that spilled out of our car on the freeway, or it may be something much more deep. Guilt sometimes is a damaging reality, but I want to suggest to you this morning that we need the ability to be able to experience guilt. Dr. Paul Brand and Philip Yancey, a physician and a writer, quite a number of years ago wrote a very compelling book entitled Pain, The Gift Nobody Wants. The book opens with the story of Tanya. Tanya was just a little girl, 16, 17 months years old, 16 or 17 months old, and her mother said, I was used to being with her in the room where Tanya was pretty much all the time, but on a certain day, I heard the phone ring. I went and answered the phone, got caught up in a conversation. I could hear Tanya gurgling and laughing, so I figured she was okay. Finished the phone call, and I thought, well, maybe I can get an early start on lunch. So I started putting lunch together. Could still hear Tanya laughing and gurgling and playing. Finally got to a point where I could go, and so I went into the other room. As I approached Tanya's playpen, I caught sight of the fact that she was drawing or painting with something on the sheet of the crib. Oh, my goodness, what did she get into? She said, I ran over and picked her up, trying to figure out what it was. And then I saw that it was her blood. The tip of her finger had been bitten off. And then Tanya smiled at me, and I saw her teeth streaked with blood. It was a horrible realization, she said, and thus began a process of many doctor's offices and of continuing attempts at medical treatment. Dr. Brand says Tanya was born with a congenital indifference to pain, meaning that she did not feel pain the way a normal person would. Well, over the coming years, the care of Tanya descended into a very dark place. In fact, Tanya's father said, it's either her or me. We hospitalized, put her in an institution or something. I'm not staying here. We've begotten a monster. But her mother would not let Tanya go, and so dad left. And then it was years later that she contacted Dr. Brand. I want you to listen to the last paragraph or two of her story and how Brand and Yancey describe that reality. Seven years later, says Brand, I received a telephone call from Tanya's mother in St. Louis. Tanya, now 11, was living a pathetic existence in an institution. She had lost both legs to amputation. She had refused to wear proper shoes, and that, coupled with her failure to limp or shift weight when standing, because she felt no discomfort, had eventually put intolerable pressure on her joints. Tanya had also lost most of her fingers. Her elbows were constantly dislocated. She suffered the effects of chronic sepsis from ulcers on her hands and amputation stumps. Her tongue was lacerated and badly scarred from her nervous habit of chewing it. A monster 
her father had called her. Well, Tanya was no monster. Only an extreme example, a human metaphor, really, of life without pain. I suspect that most of us at some point in time in our lives have thought, man, I wish I didn't have pain. Think how much easier life would be if I didn't hurt when I got hurt. But Brandon Yancey write a compelling book, the premise of which is, without pain, we would destroy ourselves. Pain serves as an early warning signal that says, hey, pay attention, something's wrong, get to the root of this, fix it. Well, quite a number of years ago, we as a pastoral staff read that book, and we discussed it together. One of our pastors at the time, one that many of you know, Pastor Bernard Taylor, made a comment in our discussion that lodged itself in my mind and which I've not forgotten. He said this, Pain is to the body, as anger is to the mind, as guilt is to the soul. We need to be able to experience each, but not too much of each. So, pain is to the body. It's an early warning signal. With no pain, we would end up like Tanya. But for those who have lived with chronic, intractable pain, you know the reality that too much pain also becomes destructive. There is that middle road where we need to be able to experience it, but also, hopefully, we need to be able to control it. Pain is to the body. As anger is to the mind, we need to be able to feel anger. If we never had anger, Others would abuse us. Injustices would happen all around us, and we would have no response to give. On the other hand, if we feel way too much anger, we all know how destructive to other people and relationships that can be, somebody who is consistently angry. So there needs to be that area where, in the middle, we can experience pain, but we know when to step away and when to surrender it. Pain is to the body. As anger is to the mind, as guilt is to the soul, we need to be able to experience guilt. A person who feels no guilt can be a narcissist sociopath, wreaking the most damaging havoc on other people and having no twinge of conscience at all. But on the other hand, Somebody who is forever guilty can be neurotic, running around apologizing for everything to the point of driving you crazy. Somewhere in the middle, we need to be able to experience guilt when we have violated an ethical standard, our own moral code, or that to which God calls us. But then know what to do with it. And it's right there that we come to today's topic. We're in a series, How Sweet the Sound. I want to remind you of our guiding star, our north star for this series. 
It's my commitment, and I hope you will join me in that for anyone who comes within the circle of our influence, that we will live out Hebrews 12, 15. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. We're committed to making certain that when it's within our power to do so, people experience God's grace. And today, grace for your guilt. This is not the Oprah Winfrey show, but you did bring a story with you this morning. Somebody brought a story here that has bowed your soul over with the weight. What do you do? Well, today we're going to go to the Psalms. We're going to go to the 32nd Psalm, Psalm 32. It's an amazing psalm. To give you some context for the psalm, scholars believe that this psalm was written at some point after David's adulterous liaison, rendezvous with Bathsheba, but that it wasn't written immediately. It was written sometime later, in fact, that it was written after Psalm 51. Many will no doubt remember Psalm 51, that elegant, immortal statement of repentance. Well, Psalm 32 comes after that because in this psalm, David is celebrating the magnificent joy of being forgiven, of having the load of guilt lifted from his shoulders. In fact, that's how he begins the psalm. The first two verses, he states, this is what it is like to be a person who's been forgiven. Notice that Psalm 32, starting with verse 1. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed are those whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. David knew what it was like to live with deceit because of what he had done. But now he had come to the point where there was no more deceit. He had come clean. He had opened up before God and before the prophet Nathan, and he had experienced the forgiveness of his sin. In fact, it's as though he wants to cover the waterfront for any possible sin. You notice there are three times some word associated with sin appears in those first two verses. Transgressions, sins, plural, and sin, singular. Those are three different words in the Hebrew. The first word in the Hebrew speaks of an outright rebellion against God, kind of like what David had done. The second one speaks of a missing of the mark. You, you tried, but somehow you, you overshot, you undershot, you missed the mark. And the third one speaks of getting twisted up in a way that maybe you had intended, maybe you had not intended. In fact, listen to the words of the late James Montgomery Boyce, scholar who writes about those words. He says this, The first, that is the first word, describes sin in view of our relationship to God. It pictures us as being in rebellion against Him. The second word describes sin in relation to the divine law. We fall short of it and are condemned by it. The third word describes sin in relationship to ourselves. It is a corruption or twisting of right standards as well as of our own beings. That is, to the degree that we indulge in sin, we become both twisted and twisting 
creatures. David uses all of these words. It's almost as though he's trying to say, when you come to God and bring your life to him, God will forgive anything, any sin that you can imagine. And let me tell you, David says, something about the joy of having that kind of peace with God. It's as though he says, I've been to the darkness and back. I've been into evil and have been brought back to right living. And there is profound joy in that. Now, when I read that, you know what I want to ask David? I want to ask him more about where he came from, what it was like to get to that point of the joy of forgiveness, of having the burden of guilt lifted. What was that like, David? And so it's as though he hears our question and he answers it. He goes back and describes what it was like to come to this place. He does that starting in verse 2. He says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Something I discovered as I was studying this passage that I had not known before. Scholars believe that the time between when David had his rendezvous with Bathsheba and the time when Nathan the prophet came to confront him was probably at least a year. Somewhere around that time frame. Maybe you've had in mind something that I had in mind at some point, and that was David did this, and the next door, bam, bam, bam. Next day, on the door, bam, bam, bam. There's the prophet Nathan. I know what you did last night. Not so. Probably at least a year passed. A year when David is trying to cover, he's sorting through what he's done, all of its implications. How am I going to respond to this? And during that time, David made a choice, which he tells us about right here. It's captured in three words. I kept silent. Not saying a word. I covered it up. I, if you will, paid people off. Whatever I needed to do to keep this contained, that's the approach I took. So how did that work for David? Did you catch the words he uses, the statements he makes? My bones wasted away. In other words, the life is draining out of me. I groaned all day long. Life was a burden to bear. Day and night, your hand was heavy on me. In other words, my conscience weighed me down to the degree that it felt like it was strangling the life out of me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. All my energy, joy for life, gone. There's a word for that. The word is guilt. Now, we have a choice with guilt. 
My friend Dale Isaiah pointed out to me this morning coming in, he said, you know, the devil can use that in very profoundly negative ways. Exactly right. If it is a sin that you have confessed and you're still plagued by guilt, that's not coming from the conviction of God's Spirit. Let's be very clear about that. But if you've taken the approach of David, I kept silent. I'm trying to hide this. Then there's something else to talk about. What do you do? How are we to respond? David describes a person whose life is being crushed out of him. I read just this week with interest a study that was published last year, July more or less, of 2017. A team of researchers did this study headed by Michael Slepian of Columbia Business University. Uh, they were researching secrets. They discovered that we all have secrets. Now, not necessarily all of those secrets are bad, but some are. And some are associated with guilt, as was the case with David. Well, the researchers discovered that the average American person has right now 13 secrets, 13 secrets that we're holding. Furthermore, the team of researchers discovered the average American has five secrets that have never been whispered to another human being, totally in here. So they wanted to know how do those secrets affect us? And so they put their subjects through some tests. They had them think about their secrets, and then they had them do certain activities to see how what they were thinking about would affect them. Here's what they discovered. Those secrets carried weight, almost literally, because the people who were pondering and thinking about those, they did, the researchers determined, had a concept of themselves as being heavier than they actually were. The way they moved, the way they negotiated spaces in life, there's something heavy we're carrying. I need more space because there's more to me than there looks to be. And then they discovered that when presented with challenges, that the research subjects thought it would take more energy to accomplish these challenges than it actually took. This would be much harder because I don't have any energy. So when they had them estimate, for example, how steep an incline was or how far a certain distance was, they consistently estimated steeper than reality and further than reality. In fact, when they gave them beanbags to toss at a target while they were thinking about these secrets, they determined that most of the time they overthrew the target. This is going to be harder than it seems. And I read that. And I thought, you know what? Maybe David wasn't using poetic license. Maybe he's describing the reality of his experience. My bones wasted away, groaning all day. Your hand was heavy upon me. Why? Well, other than the obvious that he committed the deed, why? I kept silent. 
Not going to deal with it. Going to hide it. Not going to face it. It's such an easy and natural approach to take. I read you the words of the preacher and writer Kyle Eidelman in a delightful book called simply Grace is Greater. Listen to what Eidelman writes. My son, he writes, has always taken Halloween trick-or-treating very seriously. Footnote. If you're already upset because I let my son trick-or-treat, please remember that you're reading about grace. <laughs> he literally maps out the neighborhood, carefully routing his course so he doesn't miss a single house. This is not about having fun collecting candy. This is a competition to be won, a mission to complete. He chooses his costumes for mobility purposes. At the end of each competition, he brings his bag of candy in and weighs it. Then he organizes it. He gets that impulse from his mama. He separates all the chocolates and freezes them. He organizes the rest by color and kind. <laughs> I knew all that. What I didn't know is that he also creates a spreadsheet to track how many pieces of candy he has collected, how many he has eaten, and how many he has left. When he was nine years old, his bag weighed 5.8 pounds. He went to bed that Halloween night, and I did what I normally do. I stole a young child's treasure while he slept. I decided he'd never notice if a few pieces of Laffy Taffy went missing, so I took three pieces and destroyed the evidence. The next day, I came home from work, opened the front door, and found he was waiting for me. <laughs> he said, Dad... We need to talk. <laughs> he sat me down and asked me, is there anything you'd like to tell me? <laughs> I was now feeling a little nervous and wondered if my wife had sold me out. Footnote, he probably paid her off with junior mints. <laughs> then he pulled out a piece of paper with numbers and symbols I couldn't decode, looked me in the eye, and told me he knew I'd eaten three pieces of Laffy Taffy. I never thought I'd get caught, but it turns out he was keeping track of his candy. I would have denied it to my son, but his evidence was strong, and this was not my first offense. <laughs> Instead of telling him I was sorry, I took the opportunity to point out some details to my son that he may have overlooked. For example, that I made his existence possible. <laughs> Obviously. A few pieces of candy aren't that big a deal. But here's what I discovered about myself in that moment. When I'm guilty about something, even if it's not a big deal, I have a tendency to be defensive. I do not like to admit guilt. I will passionately defend myself, irrationally justify myself, and almost always minimize the seriousness of what I've done. If that's how I respond to being accused of stealing three pieces of Laffy Taffy, chances are I'm not going to respond with much honesty or humility when it comes to the sin in my life. Everything in me wants to deny, compare, minimize, and justify. But as long as I approach my sin with that kind of spirit, I won't be able to experience the power and the greatness of God's grace. So David's response for a year, maybe, I kept silent. 
Hide, cover, deflect, deny. But then something changed. We come to the key verse of the psalm, verse 5. And this is what it says. Then, maybe a year later, then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. I acknowledged. I stopped covering up. I confessed. Is it any wonder that the 12-step programs begin with that kind of honest acknowledgement? This is who I am. This is where I failed. Doing a searching and fearless moral inventory until you come to the point of admitting to God, to myself, and to another human being the exact nature of wrongs. That's David. I acknowledged. I stopped covering. I confessed. Somebody came in to worship this morning, refusing to talk, covering, hiding. This is not the Oprah show. We don't need you to belch the darkest secrets of your life in public onto the floor. In fact, very sound spiritual wisdom says... There are some sins to be confessed between you and God alone. But there are others that may need to be confessed to the person, to a small group, and on occasion, maybe there's something more public. But the reality is, if there is to be a lifting of the load of guilt... There must be a change in attitude that says, from keeping silent and from hiding, I will acknowledge to you my sin. I will confess it to you. And I will do all in my power to make it right. I want to tell you one of the most frightening aspects of that for every one of us is actually having to admit and say that to another human being. Don't you remember? I have memories of being a child. I don't know what it is that I did because I don't remember doing anything bad. But whatever it was that I did, I can remember mom or dad or an adult, maybe a teacher, whoever it was, saying, you need to go apologize to Mr. X. And it terrified me especially if that person was an adult. How am I ever going to go there and look them in the face and say, I'm sorry, terrifying, can you relate? Well, David apparently knew that we as human beings would experience that very kind of reality, that very kind of experience. Because he speaks to those who may be wrestling with that. Notice what he says next in verse 6. 
Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. In other words, we bring to God what belongs to God. Surely the rising of the mighty waters won't reach them. You'll be okay. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. May I paraphrase that to you? What David says is, if you're at that place where you're acknowledging to God and now you have to come before someone else, you have to make amends, you have to honestly own what it is that you did, if you're terribly frightened by that, you don't go alone. This is the parent who takes you by the hand and says, I'll go with you. That's what God is saying. And it's in that context that those beautiful words are spoken, that song that we have sung, you are my hiding place. You always fill my life with songs of deliverance. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. I will trust in you. We have thought that that is a passage speaking to the overall providence of God in life. Scripture speaks to that many times. But that's not what this passage is speaking to. This passage is speaking specifically to those of us who find the prospect of acknowledging and confessing and stopping our covering terrifying. And David says, just remember, you are my hiding place. You always fill my life with songs of deliverance. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. God, be with me as I try to face the realities that I myself got myself into. Give me honesty. Give me courage. Give me your presence. You know what God says to that? In the next verse, it's God speaking. No longer David. David is quoting God. It is now God speaking. Verse 8, listen to what he says. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. As you go to make it right, your Father in heaven says, you won't go alone. I'll be right there with you. I'll counsel you. I'll guide you. I'll give you words to say. My eye will always be on you. You are not alone. So take courage to stop hiding and to acknowledge and confess because God is with you. I love the words. They come from that book, Desire of Ages, Helen G. White. Simple but powerful. Come unto me, she writes, is Christ's invitation. Whatever your anxieties and trials, spread out your case before the Lord. Your spirit will be braced for endurance. In the context of confessing, just listen to this line now. The way will be open for you to disentangle yourself from embarrassment and difficulty. The very thing that we fear God says, my eye is on you. I'll provide a way for you. 
The way will be open for you to disentangle yourself from embarrassment and difficulty. The weaker and more helpless you know yourself to be, the stronger you will become in his strength. The heavier your burdens, the more blessed the rest in casting them upon the burden bearer. That's his promise to you. You struggled here to worship maybe this morning, carrying guilt, something that has been the, the accusing fingers of a troubled conscience, something you've done. I can't face it. I can't do it. God says, I'll go with you. I'll open the way. My eye will be on you. I'll provide a way through the embarrassment, through the difficulty. I am there. But God does ask one thing. He does ask that it be something that comes from our own heart. He is not the kind of parent who says, get out there and say I'm sorry or I'll give you something to cry about. That's not what God is doing. God says it must come from within you. It must be a desire that grows out of your own heart. You've heard the old saying, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. That's the essence of what the psalmist says about this next. Notice the next verse, verse 9. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Don't be obstinate. Don't refuse. Don't push back against God. He's with you. He's promised to guide you through this process. But let it grow from within you. Because the reality is that experience with which the psalm began, the blessedness of having a guilt-free conscience, a forgiven life is profound. And so the psalmist ends with that. Verse 10, many are the woes of the wicked. Yes, that's true. But the Lord's unfailing love surrounds those who trust in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. That's the joy that's just on the other side of an honest life. That is that to which he calls us. That is what he offers us. That's called grace. I love the way that St. Augustine captured the reality of that for those who are in Christ. He says, there's no saint without a past and no sinner without a future. That's what God does. And Erwin Lutzer says, there is always, always more grace in God's heart than there is sin in your past. That's the reality of the psalmist's words. So we asked you a question this morning. We asked you, what is the hardest part of receiving God's grace? Most difficult to grasp. And we ask you, would you text it in? Well, you'll see it on the screen right now from this group, this community, second service. Forgiving myself is the hardest thing, you said. And then God's unending forgiveness, forgiving others, assurance of salvation. Well, for every one of you in every category, but especially those of you who said, I just can't forgive myself. God has forgiven you. You want to argue with him? He offers it to you full and free. 
It's like the old black preacher said. God cast all my sins into the depths of the sea, and then he put up a no fishing sign. Don't come looking for those again, because when God lifts our guilt and throws it away, God is done with it. And that's why this same psalmist, David, he wrote something about this in another psalm, Psalm 103. And in that context, he's talking about the same reality of experiencing the forgiving grace of God, of having him lift our load of guilt. And this is how he puts it there. As far, he says, as the east is from the west, so far has he separated us from our sins. So I read something this week. I'm not an astronomer. Don't come and correct me later. Give me a little homiletical license. <laughs> but I read something I'd never thought of. That the psalmist doesn't say he separated our sins as far from us as the north is from the south. It's not what he said. You see, if we, if we traveled north, if we left Loma Linda, California, and drove up California and drove through Oregon and Washington and Canada, we would finally get to the point, the North Pole, where suddenly if we continued our trajectory, we would then be headed south. That's where north meets south. But if we leave Loma Linda and drive east, how long will it take us to arrive at West? Will we get there at the Arizona border? Through West Texas, D.C., are we West yet? Through Europe, through Asia, when do we reach West? If we continue to travel East, we never arrive at West. That's how far He has separated us from our guilt from our sin. That's his promise to you. That's his promise to me. That's the magnificent grace of the God we love.